Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians. We'll be in Galatians again this morning as we continue to trace this preaching of the gospel by Paul in the book of Galatians. Again, taking a little, a few Sundays out to do a little series called The Glories of the Cross and really walking through the aspects of the cross taught by the apostles. See, as Christians, we know that the cross is an event. It's a fact that we have to deal with, a real thing that happened in time. But after the Gospels, the books of the Gospels, the apostles trace out the implications of the Gospel. Why? How? What happened at the cross? And so that's what we're focusing in on. And you could actually take a look at these systematically. You know, last week we, we talked about substitution. That's traditionally what that doctrine would be called. This idea that Christ took the curse for us. Before that, rewind back a few weeks, we spoke about election. God loving us before the foundation of the world. And this morning, we're going to talk about adoption. What does it mean that at the cross, God made us sons and daughters? I think that God's adoption isn't seen as radical anymore. In 1900, Adolf von Harnack wrote a book called What is Christianity? And he proposed that Christianity was the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. That seems like a nice thing to say. But what was von Harnack getting at? Well, he was scandalized by the idea that born-again believers have some sort of special relationship with God. That there's only one way to God, and that is through a self-conscious union with Christ. So drawing on verses about God's care for the whole world, he came up with this idea that softened the blow for him. We're all God's children. And since we're all God's children, therefore God cares for all of us in exactly the same way. Whether we worship Buddha or Allah or Jesus or no one, because we're all God's children, we're all okay. The world, not to mention many of what we would call theologically liberal churches, have largely adopted this view. You can hear it in how people talk. Pope Francis, most United Methodist churches, and several branches of liberal Lutheranism have all adopted this to one extent or another. We're all God's children, so why talk about this pesky problem of there being only one way? This idea that born-again Christians have a unique relationship, a special sonship that is obtainable only through Jesus, would shut some out. And so they don't want to talk about it at all. But is that actually how the Bible views the world? That we're all God's children with no distinction, no uniqueness. I want to propose this morning, that's not the case at all. And certainly the Bible sees a paternal care of God for the whole world. Even in the text that Chase preached just two weeks ago, Paul quotes secular philosophers at the Areopagus in Athens, Athens pointing to this idea that God cares about the whole world. And in some sense, we are all from Him as a Creator. But if that were the case... If there's nothing special, if there's nothing unique about the sonship that God brings in Christ, there should be no objection when Jesus comes on the scene calling himself God. But that's not what we find. Listen to these words. You don't have to turn there. But listen to these words in John chapter 5. This is Jesus, and he's healing a man on the Sabbath. You probably know the story of a man who sits by the pool of Bethsaida and waits for the waters to be stirred up. And Jesus heals this man, says, take up your mat and walk, and he does so. And this brings up a conflict 
with the Pharisees. They're frustrated that he's taking authority over the law, that he would tell a man to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath day. But as he has this conflict with them, a deeper conflict is revealed. It's not only because he's lording over the Sabbath. No, there's something about what he's saying that causes them even more consternation. In verse 14 of John chapter 5, Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews are persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working now, and I am working. So this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, the Jews of all people would have had this idea of God as their father through Abraham. But even they knew there was a distinction between between saying that God is your father generally and what Jesus was saying. That my father... My father, legitimately, not just generally, not just with a kind of generic love for the world. No, my father tells me what to do, and I have a special, unique relationship with him. They were so frustrated that he would make this claim. They wanted to kill him. They they saw it as impossible. To actually know the Almighty in a family-like way was utterly ridiculous. How could it be, Jesus, that the God who made the heavens and the earth, the one who sent plagues on Egypt, who put fire on Carmel and sulfur on Sodom, how dare you say that you are his special son? You see, this is the same objection that many religions have to Christianity even this day. Our key point of dispute with Muslims happens right at this point. Lest we be wooed to think that we worship the same God, this is straight from the Quran. It's Surah 1988. Those who say the Lord of mercy has begotten a son preach a monstrous falsehood at which the heavens crack and the earth breaks asunder. They wrestle with this idea. God cannot really have a son. He is too high, too lofty, too holy to have a son. And in the midst of the Jews saying those very things, Jesus steps into the world and says, I am the only begotten son. I have a special relationship with my father. And it's no small thing for him to say so. It is for the Jews the highest form of blasphemy. So keep in mind, as Jesus is saying these things, then Paul comes along and interpreting the cross says the words of our text today. We'll start in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. This is what Paul says. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Not only is Jesus a son of God, as insulting as that was to the Jewish mind. No, in light of his sacrifice, you can be a son of God. Mere human beings, and not just mere human beings, but Gentiles could be sons of God. This is a radical change from seeing God as far off. This is a radical change from seeing God as far away. To the Jewish mind, this would have been utterly confusing. 
So how does this happen? How is it possible that the God of the universe, the God of the Exodus, the God of the great miracles of the Old Testament, how is it that he would have special sons and daughters? The answer, of course, as I'm sure you're not surprised, lies in the cross. So let's start this morning looking at what this transformation is, what we were and what we've become. So what we were. We were slaves. Look at Galatians 4, verses 1 and 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under a guardian until the manager sets a date set by his father. In the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time has come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under a law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So here's this kind of odd picture that Paul draws. We were children and yet not sons. Heirs yet no different than a slave. Rather than using the visceral language that he uses elsewhere, like in Ephesians, like we read this morning, Paul draws on this rather interesting kind of legal analogy. An heir who is not truly a son. This, I think it's, it's almost like it's hard to wrestle with exactly what Paul might have been getting at in his own time, but I think a good parallel for us to think through is the idea of a ward. What is a ward? Well, when a child is lost or taken from its family of origin for some reason and placed with a family, but not truly adopted. There's guardianship there, but there's not real love. There's not real belonging. Have you seen the play or the movie Orphan Annie? Well, Orphan Annie, for the first half of that play or movie, depending on when you saw it, is a ward. She's with Daddy Warbuck, but Daddy Warbuck ain't her daddy. She, she doesn't belong There may be some kindness there, there's some guardianship there, but there's no love. And the longing of that play, the longing of that movie, is when will there truly be love? See, that's the picture of what it means to live under the law. Go back to chapter 3, in the end of chapter 3, in verse 24, Paul draws this picture. Rather, chapter 3, verse 23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So this is the idea. Under the law, we're under guardianship. There may be kindness in the law of God, but but we're not truly loved. And that's pretty much the same thing as being a slave. The law is a guardian, not a parent. See, the law can, can never give us more than instruction. It can tell you what to do, but it can't make you love God. It's like a little kid, and your parents say, you gotta eat broccoli. Well, I'm not gonna like it. That's what the law does in our hearts. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we can hit the fields and toil, but nothing in the law can make us love God. 
No amount of work can make us sons. This is why the picture that Paul draws for us is so powerful. An heir who is under a guardian rather than a parent might as well be a slave because their work is meaningless. What's a slave? It's someone who works but gains nothing from their work. There's, There's nothing to be gained in slavery. It doesn't change who you are. It doesn't It doesn't better your relationship. You work, 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 and get nothing in return. And that's the relationship of a child to a mere guardian. They might work. They might be a good kid or a bad kid. It doesn't matter. It's it's just a babysitter. It's not their parents. There's no real, true love at the end of the day. It's a sad story, isn't it? A child who knows that good behavior or bad behavior, in the end it doesn't matter because they're not really home. And that's what our lives were apart from Christ. That we could work for God, but at the end of the day, we were not truly home. Chapter 4, verse 3, Paul expands on this. He says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What is he saying? He's talking about the basics of of the law, the law that's written into the world and written on our hearts. The law of God is everywhere. Paul talks in Romans 1 that those who don't have the written law of God become a law unto themselves. We know in our hearts what God demands of us. This is why cannibals don't like to be eaten. We all know that there's morality in the world, that we ought to do things right, but that is actually an enslaving notion. Let me give you a very modern example. When you talk to unchurched millennials, that's anybody under about 35. When you talk to unchurched millennials, these are are kids who are not in the church, did not come from churched families, and you ask them what they want out of life. Do you know what most of them will say? They're not hedonists. They don't say, well, we just want pleasure. They don't say... Oh, we just want to be rich. No, the, one of the primary things that modern millennials, the largest generation in our culture, will say is they want to make a difference in the world. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a moral judgment. They want to do some good. Maybe that's you this morning. You don't really get into this Jesus thing, but you want to do some good. You want to feed the hungry. You want to end trafficking. You want to make a difference, and you want a church that's going to be a part of that. And shouldn't that be a good thing? Following the elementary principles of the world, knowing that you want to be a good person and you want more good to happen because you were there. And yet Paul says that that is enslaving. Why? Because it never actually brings us to God. Those elementary principles are nothing more than a babysitter. It's not truly a parent that will bring us home. So no matter how many wells you dig or people you feed or injustices you stop, you can never be truly filled because you know in this world you don't truly belong. It will never make you a child of God. I've seen this very clearly in my own life. Those of you who know me well know that adoption is a big part of my life, and so this doctrine is very close to my heart, and some of my best illustrations come out of my life because of that. I have uh, three adopted siblings, two of whom were adopted as children, not infants. My younger brother was adopted when he was 
you know, knee-high to a grasshopper, so he doesn't hardly remember that. But my two younger sisters were adopted when they were, I believe, six and ten. And so my youngest sister was, was fostered in foster care before she was adopted and came out of a difficult background with some neglect. And when she first arrived in our family, you see this interesting thing happen with kids that have lived without a forever family for a while. That when she first arrived at our family, she was never ill-behaved. She was never a bear to deal with at all. To this day, she's sweet as can be. But she would hoard food. She was never anything but thankful. But she would eat huge meals and even sometimes save away a little bit of food. And would sometimes ask this question at weird and random times, are we going to eat again? And it wasn't just the question of a child who's constantly hungry. No, as I got to know her, I began to realize this is the question of a child who's not sure if you're going to buy her another meal. She'd come out of a, a place from going from foster home to foster home knowing that she didn't really belong. She was thankful for everything we gave, but in her mind, it took years for her to figure out, you don't have to ask. There will always be another meal because you belong here. See, that's what we are apart from Christ. We constantly feel the need to come to God and go, is this good enough? Can I come back this time? Can I pray again? Will you do something for me again? Do you love me this time? Thanks for the last meal, God. Can I eat again? Apart from the adoption of Christ, we don't belong. See, some of you, I think, maybe even know this in your heart of hearts, that all the good that you're trying to do doesn't fulfill you because there's always something else good to do. And you work and work and work and you, you don't get the joy of the fruit of your labor because you're a slave, not a son. But I have good news. The answer is not more work. Look at verse 4 and 5 in chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, God's love isn't a generic catch-all. He doesn't sit aloof in heaven, far above our brokenness, and proclaim a dutiful affection for the world. He sent His Son, His personal envoy, to make us sons and daughters. Every single son and daughter of God is a purchased son and daughter of God. Friends, this is the difference between liking orphan care and adopting. See, some of you have gone through adoption process or have walked alongside families who have gone through the adoption process. We have a couple families right now who are at various places. And you know that whole process is long and arduous, not to mention difficult and expensive. So can you imagine going through that whole process? Thinking about it, praying about it, filling out hours of paperwork, waiting for responses, 
long nights of prayer, court fees, maybe even traveling overseas, and you complete the whole process, and you walk into an orphanage, and you say, I'm not here for any specific child. I just want the orphans of the world to know that I care. That's why I did this. Some of us have that perception of God, that God so loved the world, but he doesn't actually personally love me. That's as silly as going through the whole adoption process for nothing. Now, somewhere along that process, a selection was made. A child was claimed. And everything else you do is to go get that one. Friends, God sent his only son. Every adopted child is a purchased child. That is the picture that God sent his son for you. But it's an interesting picture, isn't it? Born of a woman, born under the law. That's the very picture that Paul says is our problem. That we're not claimed by a family. That we're merely under a babysitter. And he says God put his son in that condition. In a sense, God placed Jesus in the orphanage. He treated Jesus as if he were a ward and not a son, as though he didn't ultimately belong in the house of God. And why? To redeem those who were under the law. You see, none of us were eligible for adoption. Sin made us unfit to be adopted into a family. We were destined for never having a home, enslaved to the world and unable to be brought into the family of God. So God sent his true son, the one who actually deserved to be brought home. And he puts him into the orphanage to be our representative. Look at chapter 3, verse 27. This is how that exchange works. Chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So you've put on Christ. You are adopted by his rights. Christian, do you realize that every time God shows you fatherly love, it is because of the cross? We think that God loves us and cares for us generically. That is true. But his fatherly love for you is a purchase love. See, the cross isn't just an act of love. No, it is, it is the purchase price for every single subsequent act of fatherly love that God shows you as a Christian. The reason you're adopted, the reason God loves you with the true love of a father is because you have put on Christ. And based on his eligibility, God loves you as a father. So do you say how the cross starts to affect us in everyday life? Has God listened to any of your prayers lately? Well, he did that because of the cross. Has he offered you any comfort in your spirit, a moment of peace? He did that because of the cross. Has he kept you from some ill fortune that you deserve this week? Well, that was because of Christ. See, every act of fatherly love in our life is an adopted love. It's a purchased love, a redeemed love that happens because we are baptized into Christ. The cross isn't just the door to the Christian life. The cross is the Christian life. 
It's the reason that God continues to love us with a fatherly love. That's why for eternity, our cry will not be, glory to God and thanks for that humble selfless thing you did once. It will be, worthy is the lamb who was slain. For your blood, you ransomed a people for God. For all of eternity, we never get over the cross because it is the basis on which we are children. Every ounce of God's fatherly love for us is a purchased love, a ransomed love. So what does it mean for our daily lives to be adopted of God? What does it mean to be ransomed in his family? Where does the rubber hit the road? Well, Paul gives us two little sections in his argument and two analogies. The first section is right at the end of chapter 3. And the second section is right at the end of our sermon for today in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And the two ideas are sons and heirs. So let's look first at this idea of heirs. Chapter 3, verse 27. What does it mean to be an heir? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, according to the promise. So, wait a minute. If we have put on Christ, if we belong to him, then we are Abraham's heirs. For us as Gentiles, that has to bring up the question, why would I want to be Abraham's heir? Right, if, if I were to say, okay, here's the deal. Next Sunday, there's going to be a sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center. All you have to do is go back there, put your name, email address, and phone number. And the week after that, we'll all be becoming Israelites. I don't know that without any explanation, any of you would want to sign up. Why would we want to become Israelites? Why would we want to be made sons of Abraham? And yet, here it is, right in this verse, we are made sons of Abraham according to the promise. For our Gentile minds, it sometimes takes a little bit of Old Testament understanding to get what's going on here. You see, the inheritance of Abraham was the promise of God. That's what the whole second half of Genesis is about. An inheritance of promise that is passed down from son to son. Abraham to Isaac. Isaac to Jacob. We've come, become so accustomed to the wideness of the gospel that we forget our salvation history. You see, the question for the Jew reading this passage is not how is it that Gentiles become sons or the difference between Gentiles and Jews in the church. Their question is how do Gentiles get saved at all? See, lest we forget, Jesus was a Jew. Early Christianity was Judaism. It started in the synagogues. And so the Jews are a little astonished that any Gentiles are coming in. I, I hardly, I think they couldn't probably imagine that we would become a predominantly Gentile faith, that the nations would be gathered in. Now, they could hardly understand. You see, for a Jew, this is what Jewish end times looked like, Jewish eschatology. What did final salvation look like? Well, in the Old Testament, you had to put on the clothing of a Jew, you had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised and follow the law and wear the tassels and, 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 and basically belie who you really were. 
And so the, the Jewish view of salvation is that the final time, God will restore the temple to a high and lofty hill, and the Jews will be there, and the other nations will just come and kind of gather around. You remember in the temple, there's a, there's a true temple, and then there was a Gentile court. So you, you can come, you can be near God, and you can just gaze on what our great relationship with God looks like. That was the best you could be. And now, this is what Paul is saying. No more courts. No more divisions. No. You are truly made Jews. You get to come into the temple. You get to come into God's presence. You get all those same promises. See, this is the great mystery of the gospel that's revealed. That God has a spiritual Israel. He desires to bring many sons to glory. We aren't going to be kept in the outer courts. His temple won't be on just a high hill, but a heavenly one. And our inheritance isn't just a single strip of land in the eastern Mediterranean. No, the true son of David will rule the whole earth. And we will be in a temple not made by human hands. You see, this is why Paul talks about being heirs. And he says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male or female. All the dividing walls are broken down. Do you realize that because of the cross of Christ, you have access to God? That idea was impossible in the Old Testament. Impossible. No one can see God. The Israelites themselves refused to go up the mountain to spend time with Him. There's a massive veil between the temple and the Holy of Holies. No one gets to be with God. And yet here is the promise fulfilled that not only do Jews get to be with God, but no, the door is open for the whole world. If they are in Christ, they can be with God. How does this happen? Well, Paul says, it's because you have put on Christ. There's one true son who actually has the rights to barge in on his father. There's one true son who actually has the merit that it takes by, by very virtue of who he is to come into the father's presence and to gain his hearing. And at the cross, Jesus says, I'm going to give that to anyone who will come to me. We come on Christ's sonship. Neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. Why does he mention these? Well, all of these. All of these are people who had restricted access. Right? Gentiles can't come into God's presence. Not until you become Jews. Slaves can't come into God's presence. That's, that's for free men. And even women don't have the same relationship with God. And Paul says, no, no, no. Not anymore. They are all sons. It's not a mistake that he doesn't say sons and daughters. This is actually very good for you, ladies. It's not a mistake that he doesn't say sons and daughters. In the Jewish mind, daughters don't inherit. Daughters don't share in the inheritance. That goes to the sons. But here Paul says, you are all by right of inheritance in the one true Son. I think it, it bears having a little excursus here to talk about this because Paul is saying distinctions, distinctions don't matter. 
And in our modern culture, a lot of people will say, well, therefore, distinctions don't matter at all. Many of you know one of the distinctions of leadership in our church is that we're committed to a complementarian view of gender roles. We believe men and women are completely equal in essence. That means value, basic ability, dignity, but different in role in both church and home. So what does that mean in light of what's said here? So we want to be Bible people. Is there no male and female? How do we, how do we deal with that? I think the division is solved when we realize it's the same Paul who says here, no male and female, is the same Paul that says, wives, submit to your husbands. I don't think he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. In fact, I think these two things are bound together. Paul isn't being foolish or contradictory. The point isn't that distinctions don't matter at all on this earth anymore. In fact, if you remember the book of Philemon, Paul doesn't free the slaves. He calls both the slave and the master to look to a greater reality. I think the similar thing is happening here. It's a radical statement that these walls are being torn down. That slaves will inherit and Gentiles will inherit and women will inherit. And the greater picture is not in our distinctions, but in our united identity in Christ, that He is the great heir. So it's not contradictory for Paul to still recognize these distinctions. But a word to guys in light of this, all right? It is true that the Bible calls your wife to submit to you, but be really careful with demanding that. See, if what Paul just said is true, then every time that your wife submits, it is nothing less than the submission of a co-heir, one who has complete equal standing before God. When your wife lovingly submits to you, it is the gracious deference of a princess of the universe. You hold a sacred trust in your leadership, gentlemen. And if you violate it, that's why God says if you violate it in 1 Peter, I won't listen to your prayers because I don't like it when people mess with my princesses. And so men, as you lead your wives, you better lead them like Christ leads the church because they are co-heirs. They are completely equal in standing before God. And it is a sacred trust we hold if we're honored with marriage. But the picture here is that all our relationships are caught up into a greater reality that we are co-heirs with Christ. See, it's probably wise for us to remember that in this equation, we are the ones on the outside. Every single one of us falls into the category of Gentile. Right? I don't think we have any ethnic Jews with us today. I may be wrong about that. I'm seeing a lot of blondes and brunettes out here. We are on the outside. We are the exiles that need to be brought in. We are refugees. And we're brought in as not just heirs, but sons. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. This is the last thing we'll look at this morning. Chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Actually, let's start in verse 5. He sent his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, 
than an heir through God. What does it mean to be a son? It means to cry, Abba, Father. To truly belong. Much, get, much gets made of this word Abba. This Hebrew word for father. You can go read commentary after commentary, article after article. Does it mean daddy or dear father or papa? or, or how, do we, how do we best translate it? I think it's very good that they just Take it straight into English, Abba. Because I think all of that misses the point. The reason why Paul uses the word Abba here is not because it has some mystical definition that if we finally get that, we'll understand adoption. No, he uses the word Abba because that's the word Jesus used. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus in his darkest hour of need in the Garden of Gethsemane wrestling with God's will and he cries out, Abba, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Why? Because it's personal. That's what children call their dad. That's not, that's not, what, that's not what parishioners call their priest. That's not what, that's not what followers call their leader. That's, that's not what disciples call their rabbi. That's what a true child says to his father, Abba. And so Paul is saying, when you are adopted, God sends the very Spirit of Jesus into your heart so that you can cry, Abba, Father. That your relationship with God is like unto that of Jesus' relationship with God. See, that was far more intimate than anybody else would have dared to pray to God in Jesus' time. His relationship was unique. He's the true begotten Son and yet Paul says that when we are united to Christ in baptism, when we have put on Christ, we receive the very Spirit of Christ so that we can call God Abba. See, no amount of law-keeping can ever make you a son or daughter. No amount of little orphan Annie scrubbing the floors or being kind could ever make her belong in the house. And yet when we are adopted of God, He sends the Spirit of His Son into us so that we can truly say, Father. That's why Jesus can say, as the Father has loved me, so has I, have I loved you. Adoption means that because of the cross, you are adopted in Christ. And because of being in Christ, you are loved as Christ. The same love with which God loves His only begotten Son is passed on to you because you are seen as in Him. I see so many people today trying to assure themselves of God's love. I, I, I probably spend too much time on Facebook. Um, and as I will troll the Facebook wall, I see so many Christians, I don't want to assume what their motivations are, but some folks will just post meme after sentimental meme and there's nothing wrong with what they're saying. But for some of them, there seems to be a quiet desperation, a longing to just finally feel assured that this is really true, that God really does love them. And maybe just one more inspirational saying will make it drive home to my heart. Brothers and sisters, if, if you are adopted in Christ, you have assurance. He, he, God loves you with the same love that He loves His Son because you are in His Son. 
You don't need one more encouraging thought. You don't need a, a daily heart or a daily thought or Jesus calling. No, you are in Jesus. You are loved as a son. And nothing can take you out of that. Stop going to your father and saying, are we going to eat again? You, you belong here. You, you've been adopted. You've been made his own. I remember uh, when I was about 14, like I said, I have, uh, I have two brothers, one of whom is adopted. And, uh, and people who have adopted know that sometimes you get silly questions about adoption. That's uh, just part of the game. You get used to it. And uh, I was 14 and used to answering a lot of these questions because I have a little brother who is big, muscular, six foot two, and dark-skinned. He's my little brother. That gets some questions. And somebody came up, and my older brother, myself, and my younger brother are sitting there. My older brother looks like a five-year-old version, five-year-older version of me. So we're sitting there, and somebody comes up and, and, uh, to the three of us, and I can neither explain the question or the answer. And they say, so which one of your brothers is adopted? And in the moment, because I've grown up with these guys for the last 14 years, I dropped the ball. And I said, uh, mm, I literally could not think of it. Because Aaron doesn't look any different to me. I've been looking at him for now 25 years. I forget what he looks like. Because he was my brother. And in my mind, there was no difference. There was no distinction. Jared and Aaron are desperately different guys. But they're both my brothers. And a legal reality had become for me a deep spiritual reality. There's, there's no, I don't have a brother and an adopted brother. I have two brothers. Friend, you, you are made God's son or daughter. God, God, God doesn't think of you as having some outside relationship, some second-tier relationship. You're no longer in the Gentile court. He has sons because you've been placed in Christ. That's why he sent his son into the orphanage to bring home many sons and daughters to glory. And he loves you as a son. Adoption means because of the cross, God loves you in Christ. And you were baptized in Christ to put on him. So how do we apply this today in the final two minutes here? Well, I think... Maybe some of you this morning feel like you are on probation with God. You feel like a ward and not a son. Like my little sister, you still fear, feel, fear that God may not take care of you tomorrow. That you still have to do something to impress Him. That you haven't earned your place yet. And you work and work, but it will just make you angry because you know in your heart that you don't seem to be gaining anything. Friend, that isn't the gospel. God has called you to something higher and better. And to close this morning, I just want to share a story because I think Jesus, Jesus tells a story that sounds exactly like this in Luke chapter 15. 
You probably know it as the story of the prodigal son. But there's a second son who sounds just like the son in this passage. We know the story of the one who runs away. He squanders everything. He says, I don't deserve to be back in the home. And yet the father runs out to him and makes him his son again, puts on him the robe and the ring. Looks like a re-adoption, doesn't it? But there's actually another son. Well, listen to this. In, in Luke 15, verse 25, the older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. They said, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. Sounds a bit like a slave, doesn't he? These many years I have served you, I never disobeyed your command, but you never gave me a young goat. I worked and worked and worked, and I was like a slave. It didn't earn me anything. But when this son of yours came who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And listen to what the father says. He says, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. You're an heir. Why are you acting like a slave? It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For your brother who is dead is alive. He was lost and is found. To see the gospel is to realize which son we are. Are we standing out in the field trying to impress God with our work, clinging to the works of the law, only to feel like a slave who goes in day in and day out to the fields? And going, God, when, when, when are you going to sacrifice the fatted calf for me? Or will we understand, throwing aside our pride, that we are the prodigal, and it's time to throw down our tools and go into the party. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that it is all of grace. You have called us sons, sons and daughters, and so we are by the grace of Christ. Father, I pray that if there are those here who are working and working and working, trying to prove themselves by your law or a law they've made unto themselves, that they would see that adoption is beautiful and rich. And it is only through faith in Christ and his redemption. Help us to cherish the cross. We say it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.